Guys, I've got a couple things before the message itself. Is Deanne here? Deanne, would you stand up so people that don't know you can know who they're praying for? This is Deanne Blankenship. I'll share one story about Deanne. This is really loud up here to me. Is that me or is that you guys? Perfect? Okay. Um, Deanne, Deanne's one of the founders of Lion and Lamb Church. Deanne goes back to the very first days, very first meetings, and you've got to watch her because sometimes she's unfair in going about her goals. So when we were naming this church, some of you remember this, when we were naming this church, we'd come, we'd thrown out a bunch of ideas, and I think this was in the McElroy's living room or library back in the day. And <clears throat> So on that Sunday morning, we've thrown out some names. We're going to come to a consensus as a church on what that church is going to be called. And we're talking about one thing and another. Well, Deanne has brought her little boom box and she's brought a song that has the refrain, the lion and the lamb. No one else brought a song. No one else came equipped. And so Mike's name was shot down and Deanne's went up. And so we've been lion and lamb. We've been lion and lamb ever since. I, I used to blame Deanne for that. And now, I, now I thank her. I, I wasn't thrilled with the name of, uh, initially, but it grew on me. Anyway, so thank you, Deanne. <laughs> Hey, too, uh, Kathy and I, we're, we're here today. We're here next Sunday as well. We'll join you guys. Larry said two weeks. It's next Sunday, July 2nd, will be the potluck. So we'll join you for that Sunday in the potluck as well. And then we're going to leave after that for Colorado for our short sabbatical. And we'll be back August 13th with you again uh, here then. So uh, you feel free to miss us a little. Pray for us if you would. We'll miss you a little. We'll pray for you too, and that'll be good. Uh, and a point of clarification, uh, you, you hate to speak uh, less than factually, especially when you're teaching Scripture. Last week I said Mordecai, this was out of the book of Esther, was King Saul's direct descendant. He was not King Saul's direct descendant. He was of the same family, same forebear, Kish, but he was not Saul's direct descendant. Okay, so let's move on. You know, uh, broken eggs, broken promises. We've just come through a a political season, the end of last year, you know, actually one of the most unique in history. Two candidates, sort of, it was, is the winner the loser? Is the loser the winner? You know, we weren't sure who we were going to vote for. Uh, we've just come through special elections, too. I don't know if you guys caught that on the news, but people in national office who were promoted to Trump's uh, positions, that their roles back from their state offices had to be refilled. So those just came through, too. That put me in mind of some of the bromides related to politicians and promises. Here's a few. I thought these were pretty good. Most politicians spend half their time making promises and the other half making excuses. Thinking of the broken promises there. Uh, here's another. The object of a political primary is to choose a promiser who will outpromise the other party's promiser. And the last on the political front. Any politicians in here, by the way? Too late. Uh, nothing makes it harder to remember campaign promises than getting elected. The, yeah, these are just a couple more general. Promises are like money, easier made than kept. Do you guys find that? Easier to say you'll do something than to in fact do it. We, we need to be careful. And last, promises are only as dependable as the one making them. And boy, that's true, isn't it? Promises are only as dependable as the one making them. So we are in the last of a very short series in Deuteronomy. Remember we called this Lessons from Deuteronomy. And the lessons 
we were taking from Deuteronomy were those passages where Moses told Israel to remember something from their past. Remember this book was his swan song. He's going to die at the end of this. In fact, Deuteronomy records his death. And so he's not going into the land of promise. And so he's telling Israel, remember the lessons you learned over the last 40 years. Take the value of those lessons with you into the land of promises. Joshua leads you on. We're in the last of those four promises or series of promises we've been looking at. And this morning, we're going to look at God's promises. The remember related to God's promises. Maybe. Guys, the setting is this. The, the verse that we've got in Deuteronomy 9, so Moses is looking back, he's, he's speaking back, he's referencing stuff right at the beginning of the Exodus, at, at Sinai and immediately afterwards. And he said this, um, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights right after the calf and the refusal to go into the land of promise. Because the Lord said to me, He would destroy you. I pray to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage. And of course, He's calling them gods. They're they're yours, so you should have a special care for them. Whom you have redeemed through your greatness, everything on God. Whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And this is the remember, verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. So here's Moses and he's recounting the incidents and he's recounting his prayer to God after those singular points of failure. And notice what he does. He says, remember the patriarchs. That's significant. We'll flesh that out here in just a second. But don't remember this people's stubbornness and sin. As he's praying to God, he's saying, Lord, don't look at these people that have just sinned, but would you look back at the patriarchs? Would you not think about the qualifications that these people don't have before you? They've sinned and they failed. And remember this whole thing, this is with the law and the covenant. It's totally conditional. You know, at Sinai, God says, if you obey, if you keep, you'll live, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you won't. You'll get death. You'll get elements of death. They've already disobeyed. So Moses' plea, his prayer, is not based on Israel's worthiness. It's based on God and God's promises. Now, he doesn't bring up promises here directly as a word, but when he says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is referring back to the promises God had made to the patriarchs. That's where we'll go next. So... What's Moses thinking about? Remember, Moses is the human author, the penman of the first five books of the Bible. So when we're thinking about Genesis, and that's where we'll be here for just a minute, Moses penned Genesis. He's aware of what God had done in the past. He's aware of the promises God had already made when he approached God in prayer. So, So what kind of basis or foundation was Moses thinking when he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What kind of promises is he thinking about? And I'll give you just a few, but there would be many more than this. And what we'll find is this. Thirteen times in Genesis, God promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that He's going to give them and their descendants the land of promise. And that's what you'd see on the map. He's going to give them the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of promise. And He says that He's going to continue the relationship with their descendants that He started 
with Abraham. Those are the promises. So from Genesis 12, you guys remember in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, really significant, the, the, the outworking of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, basically goes through the rest of the Bible. So it's significant. And if you remember there, when God calls Abram out of Ur, He says, hey, leave your family, leave the place of your origin, you're going to go to the land that I'll show you, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, in that context, he also said, to your offspring I give this land, this land of Canaan. This land that he told Abraham to go to. Genesis 13, 15, all the land that you see, remember Abraham gets up there, he takes the trip, he starts walking through the land, God says, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Genesis 15, 18, this was the covenant God made with Abraham. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And that's essentially what you see in the pink on the map up there. And last here, Genesis 17.8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, that's the land, and I will be their God. And I will be their God. So when God threatens to destroy Israel, Moses' response is, Lord, you can't. Because you've made commitments, you have promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would get the land. And that your relationship with them, the patriarchs, would continue through their descendants. So Moses is saying, you can't do that, Lord, because you'd be breaking the promises you sovereignly made to the patriarchs. And you see very similar language in Deuteronomy 9. So this is before the verses we started with. But look at this again. What we want to get here on the front end is this nuance. Israel's appeal to God will never be based on their own worthiness. That's the lesson we want to take home today. It's not about us. If it is, they were in trouble and we were in trouble. But Israel and Moses' appeal to God for their benefit is always predicated on God, God's character and God's promises. And that's what we want to take home for ourselves today too. And of course that comes out in spades for Christians after the incarnation. But in Deuteronomy 9, before that initial passage we read, Moses says this, Uh, Not because of your righteousness to Israel or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. This is the Canaanites' land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And we'll pause there for just a second. Remember we talked about this, I think, last time that God had said in the covenant in Genesis 15 that Abraham and his seed get the land, but they don't get it for 400 years. And he said, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. God said, basically, I'm going to let the wickedness of the people of the land go to a certain level, and then I'm going to cut it off. And we would say that's very similar to what he did in Genesis 6 with the flood. You know, every intention of the man of heart was evil continually. The the world is filled with, with violence, God said. He says, I'm going to cut it off. Similar thought there. So when Moses is talking to Israel, he says, it's not the uprightness of your heart by which God gives you the land. He said, one... It's because of the wickedness of the nations. God's going to dispossess them because of their own sin. And then he says, two, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. That's the point. Moses says, you're confirming your word, Lord, to to our patriarchs, to your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in giving them the land. It's not about Israel or their worthiness. It's about God's sovereign plans. 
and the promises He's already made. And you see the same thing in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, can you imagine Israel if they're thinking we're all that? God chose us because we're all that, because we're significant, because we're important, because we're numerous, or we're smart, or we're this, or we're that. And he says, well, no, actually, it wasn't all about you. You weren't all that. It wasn't because you were great or mighty or significant. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you. And remember, it says he chose you. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So isn't that interesting? Moses' appeal, Israel's appeal in the future can't be on Israel. It has to be on God and the promises God had already made. Now think about Abraham for just a minute. God committed Himself to Abraham and his descendants because He chose to. This was on God, it wasn't on them. You know, who is Abram? He's another pagan in the land of Ur. Until God speaks to him and calls him and chooses him. And God knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything he's going to get from Abraham. And if you read his stories, you remember he's duplicitous. He puts his wife in harm's way. You look at his life and you say he's got a feet of clay like all of us. He's a nice guy, but he's not a great guy. Isaac, Jacob, you look at and it's like, yeah, maybe they'd be like our next door neighbor. But it doesn't look like God chose them because they were all that. They're a lot like us, aren't they? Feet of clay, lives of sin, they're deficient. But God chose to. And God made promises to Abraham and his descendants based on his own purposes, not on their merit. That's significant too. So we, want to, we want to come away with a couple thoughts today. That God is sovereignly in charge and it's God's sovereign plan and will that directs His gracious promises. God's serving His own purposes when He chooses these people and when He makes these promises. This isn't willy-nilly. This isn't on them. This is on God. This is on God and His purposes by which all this stuff starts out. God knew the multitude of times and ways Israel would prove faithless when He gave His promises. Now, God interacts with them and with you and I in real space and real time. And so you'll read in the Old Testament, and we want to be clear on this, God speaks sometimes as a person in the situation. He will say in Genesis 6, I'm sorry that I made man. Well, does that mean that he made a mistake and now he says, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that? That's not what he's saying. God's emotional. The pain of violence and murder and wickedness he feels. And he speaks in the moment and says, I'm sorry, I have sorrow over this. But it doesn't mean he's changing his mind. He's sovereignly choosing what he wanted to come about. God's goodness, kindness, promise keeping is not based on Israel's righteousness and his towards us is not based on ours, but on his desire at the end of the day to honor and exalt himself. And that's ultimately seen in Jesus, in the incarnation and the resurrection. In fact, Jesus' future glory, which we'll get to here in just a minute. So, God, who knows the end from the beginning, he knows, he knows every sin, right, Israel will ever commit. No surprise when he chooses Abraham and commits himself, puts himself on the hook for these people, these stiff-necked, stubborn people who are always sinning, going astray. He knows all that before he makes the commitment. The commitment is for his own plans and purposes, and it shows his grace. 
So God's going to keep his promises to the Jews, and that's what Moses is hanging his hat on. And just a brief caveat on this too, depending on the, um, the theological background you come from, the kind of church you might come from, or the kind of people you read, some people will say today that the promises that God made to Israel will be fulfilled in the future in the church. And we're not going to develop this this morning, but I just think they've got that all wrong. Because God, um, if God made a promise to you, to James, and then he fulfills it to Emily, James feels ripped off. It's like, God, you made the promise to me. And you say, well, no, 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 it's actually, it's really Emily that I'm keeping. And you'd say, I don't think that's what I heard. And so there, there's guys that I love, guys that I read that hold this position, that Israel doesn't have a future as a nation, as an ethnic nation. But, but I think they're all wet on this. There's some great theology that sees Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment, and I'm good with that. But I don't think it takes God off the hook to give Israel the land of promise and to fulfill. And by the way, there's a ton of promises and prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Israel, the descendants of Abraham, that have not occurred. And I, I believe God's going to literally keep those. So we want to look. We want to look. I just want to look at a couple of ways in, related to God's sovereignty and His grace. So when we're thinking about promises, we need to remember that the God who is sovereign over all, who sees the end from the beginning, is the one who made the promises. And that He's displaying both His sovereignty and His grace in those promises, in those statements He makes that we hang our hat on. Related to God's sovereignty, in the Song of Moses, the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, we, we hear this. God says, see now that I, even I am He, and there's no God beside me. There's no, whatever the, whatever the, the Gentile nations claim, there's no God except one. You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one. God says, there's one, I'm it. I kill, I make alive. I do as I please. Life, death, everything in between. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God says I'm God and things go the way I please. No one can sort of upend God's plans. It's impossible to do so. God uses our wills. God uses all kinds of things. But it all occurs under His sovereign will and plan. And we know from Ephesians 1.11, if you remember just a few weeks or months back, when we were working through uh, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians called Christ Overall, the end to which God's sovereign plans and grace are moving everything, and, and always we're going to from the very beginning, is that God the Son will be Christ over all things. That's the end to which everything's going. God's sovereign plans, His grace is moving all things to be subject to Christ. So God says He's sovereign. When He makes promises, it's under His sovereignty. He knows what He's doing. You and I don't upend that. God's sovereign. It's going to happen. The other thing you see, though, is that He combines His sovereignty with His grace. The fact that God can do anything He wants to do doesn't mean that He will, that He has the ability to do. It's, it's constrained by His own character. God is loving. He's kind. He's gracious. He delights in those qualities, Scripture says. And so what you see is God combines His sovereignty with His grace when He makes these promises. You see this in Psalm 115. And listen to the way the psalmist combines sovereignty and grace. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. 
your kesed and your emeth, your, your loyal, gracious love and your truth, your truthful ways, your truth-keeping ways, your grace. Verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. God's gracious, He's loyal, He's kind, and He does whatever He wants. And He combines those two elements. Related to God's grace, and we'll wind down on this section, Exodus 34, 6. When Moses said to God, I, and he's been hearing from God, he's been interacting with God, but he still all he says is, I want to know more of you. And guys, this is a lesson to itself, right? The more you know of God, the more you want to know of God. And that's John 17, 3. Eternal life is to know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you've sent. That's life. It's to know God. It's to be in relationship with Him. So Moses knows Yahweh, but he says, I want to know more. Show me yourself. And God says, well, you're not going to see my face, but I'll walk by. And as God does, this is what God says. The Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the eternally existent God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God reveals more of Himself to Moses, He says... Slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God wants to tell us what He's like, that's what He says. Loving kindness, grace, mercy. Number 6, 24 and 25. I love this. You know, God told the descendants of Levi that when you bless Israel in My name, this is what you say. So God gave the blessing, the Levitical blessing, number 6, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. When God gave the priests a prayer, that's what He said. You guys appeal, you remind yourselves that I'm gracious. That that my will for you is peace. So what we want to see is that God's combining His sovereignty with His grace when He makes these promises. You can count on them. They advance God's will and they reveal His loving, gracious character. So when Moses intercedes for Israel, time after time, sin after sin, he does so based on God's own sovereign promises and God's commitment and grace to His people. Now, that's the lesson out of Deuteronomy. So let me ask you a question. So do you guys think that we are qualitatively different than the people Moses was praying for? Do you think your humanity and mine is qualitatively different than theirs? So sort of, are we smarter? Are we morally superior? Are are we just made of better stuff than the Jews that were part of this lesson with Moses? Do you think we're qualitatively any different than them? And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking probably not. And if that's the case, if we're like they were, then it makes sense that when we appeal to God in prayer for whatever the need is, and especially in times of personal failure and need, that we would follow that same example that Moses had when he prayed for Israel. When we approach God in times of sin or need, we don't approach based on what we deserve or our own worthiness, but we approach God on the basis of His sovereign, gracious promises. And ultimately, of course, For us today, that's through Christ. So, I'm going to go through a few arenas of life that um, if you say today, uh, Moses Moses knew God's Word, didn't he? So when he prayed, he, he prayed God's Word. He prayed God's Word back to God. 
you know, when we talk about reading our Bible and memorizing our Bible, one of the things that knowing what God has said in His Word is, you know what God is committed to. And so when you pray, you're free to pray God's Word back, just like Moses did. And if you, if you do a brief study, you'll see that when people in the Bible pray, they pray God's Word. They pray God's Word back to Him. If you and I want to have confidence when we pray, we need to know what God says He's behind what he wants to do. And then we want to pray God's word back to him. And there's a number of arenas. I've got six, I think, here. You guys would have other areas of life in which you would come up with other statements in the Scripture or promises that inform what we think and how we would approach God in prayer and a variety of needs. The first one I'm going to mention here is God's commitment to common grace, what we call common grace. God's grace that extends to everyone on the earth. You know, back in Genesis 6, God said, I'm done with man for now. Noah and his descendants, they're going to repopulate the earth, but I'm wiping everyone else out in that great flood, that worldwide flood. But after the flood waters were receding, he said this in Genesis 8, 20 through 22. The Lord said this in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is a promise. It's a commitment. In fact, it's a covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. The rainbow in the cloud, we're supposed to remember even today, is the promise of God's covenant keeping. He'll never do this again. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now that was a promise. And isn't that interesting? For me, this is really helpful. God uses storms, doesn't He? Floods, tornadoes, droughts. God's sovereign over weather. Um, God allows certain things to affect weather. You know, God allows Satan sometimes to affect weather. You see that in Job, for sure. But God basically says, He he controls everything. And He says this, it's not going to end that while man is here, seed time and harvest, the seasons of life are going to continue. Think of Ecclesiastes. Life is the, the earth will continue to rotate. Sunrise, sunset, season after season. Men will plant, men will reap. This comes up later in Acts 14. Paul says one of God's testimonies to himself was that he sent rain. He gave rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's been going on since the flood. And God committed himself to that. Uh, Matthew 5, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's God's common grace. He's committed to it. When California, where our daughters live, two of our daughters live, was in that drought. Isn't this interesting, by the way? They were in a drought for years and years. And you know, California produces about a third of the fruits and vegetables you and I eat. That's important. They were in a drought forever, and now they're afraid of flooding. Did you guys know that? They've had, re- they, they've had literally 20 feet of snow, snowpack stacked up on the, whatever the mountains are there, sort of in central southern California. And they said, if we get a heavy rain, we're in trouble because it's going to flood. We're going, we're going potentially from drought to flood. But when we were, we were praying, our family was praying about the drought. And these are the verses that come to mind. Lord, you've promised that we would have seed time and harvest, that you're sending the rains that gladden men's hearts. Now, you know God uses the drought. That's part of His purposes. But generally, God says this is just going to be the way it keeps going on. Now, I think we're going to see lots more natural disasters as the time of Christ's return approaches. But God's laid that out in in His Word too. So generally, though, God's common grace to all. He's told us about that. He's committed to that. When we pray for people in situations where common grace is important, we can pray with confidence along these lines. God's common grace. 
How about God's saving grace? God's sovereign promises informed by grace. So Romans 5, 6 through 10, you guys will know this passage. While we were still weak, Paul says, and weak here spiritually, we couldn't rise up to God. God had to bend down to us if we were going to be reunited. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, maybe. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. This is what I love about this passage. If a person says, if they admit, I'm ungodly and I'm a sinner, then I can tell them on the authority of God's Word, then I've got great news for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died to justify you. That's what God says here. That's His promise. If I recognize I'm a sinner, then I can take God as His Word and say, God, Jesus died for the ungodly and the sinner. That's me. And so I want His justification. And I know you have to give it to me because you've said Jesus died for the ungodly and sinners. And that's me. Jesus died for me. We can pray with confidence the prayer of salvation because we know God's committed Himself to it. Jesus died for sinners. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. Romans 3.24, we're justified by God's Grace is a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. We receive it. We don't earn it, right? We're not appealing to God based on our own worthiness. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. We simply say, God, you've, you've connected yourself to this promise in Christ. It's a gift. I receive the gift. I want to be saved. And you've committed yourself to it. And your sovereign grace, I accept that. Saving grace. There's also restoring grace and these are things we need just like Israel did we all blow it we sin Ephesians 1 7 says in Christ in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses you guys probably know this but just as Israel was called to be God's people his unique people they sinned after they became his people after the covenant they still sin and you know what you, you and I do, I'll bet you're like me in this. So you get saved. I'm a sinner. I'm ungodly. I get saved. And then I never sin again. How nice. Or maybe not. Or maybe we find that we're like Israel. Maybe we do sin again. Maybe once or twice. Or, or maybe more. This passage says that His blood covers my trespasses. In fact, this comes up again. This comes up in Hebrews 10. And again, if, as, as Christians we struggle with this, can you imagine if you're still outside the faith, God give us, gives us a conscience. And we can sin against it. And we can dull it. But a, a functioning conscience, it sort of hammers us, doesn't it? When we've done wrong and we know it. And so you can try a number of ways to get your conscience off your back. But Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. Sex won't do it. Using or abusing anything won't do it. But it says the blood of Jesus will do it. It'll cleanse your conscience. 1 John 1.9 says if you'll confess your sins, He'll forgive your sins. And it says He'll cleanse you 
Well, see, that, that's God putting God on the hook. Jesus' blood covers my sins. I need to know that as a Christian. So, have you guys ever been in the... In fact, or maybe you'll talk to someone. Maybe we are that person or maybe that we're talking to that person. They might say something like this, I sinned again. Or we might say, I sinned again. And I feel terrible. And so we say, based on God's Word, well, you should confess your sin and God will cleanse you. If they say something like, I don't feel cleansed, then I can say something like, but you are. If you've confessed, if, you're, if, you're, if you've spoken the truth to God, you've confessed. I come with God, my hands are up. This is what I did, Lord. I blew it. I've confessed my sin. And I'm a Christian. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me of those sins and I'm washed clean again. And if I'm not feeling that, then I, I say that, but then I claim, God, God, you said that I'm cleansed, that the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. God, would you help me to lay hold of the benefit of that? I see it. It's your promise. I'm not feeling the good of it. Would you help me feel the good of it? We need to know God has that kind of restoring grace too. It's based on His promises. There's keeping grace. Have you guys, again, maybe it's you or maybe it's somebody you know, or maybe when you were a young Christian and you were still trying to figure out, am I saved part way a little? Am I saved all the way? You know, as a new Christian, my life was still a wreck uh, for two or three years after I came to Christ. And I was just really dumb. And um, spiritually still, I was so, so slow. Uh, and when I would sin sometimes, I thought, I'm probably just not a Christian. Maybe that's just my problem. I'm just not a Christian. But I knew who Jesus was. I couldn't deny I know who Jesus is. I know what he did. And, and, and to know that, absolutely, that, that is that's salvation. But I had that question, am I really saved? Well, listen to this from John 10. Maybe you guys have struggled with this or someone you know will. Jesus says there, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now guys, people who believe you can get saved and lose your salvation, they've got a problem. Because they're, they're redefining words against God's Word. If you get eternal life, how long does it last? It lasts forever. Can you lose something God gives you that lasts forever? It's an impossibility. If we have any confusion on that, He says it twice, redundancy, they'll never perish. When will they perish? Never. Can they perish? Never. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Besides saying eternal life, and they will never perish, then Jesus gives a word picture and He says, my sheep, they're not just sheep out there, they're in my hand. Now this is God the Son. And His sheep are in His hand. What force, what external force can remove a sheep from His hand? Can't happen. He's omnipotent. And if that's not enough, redundancy again, he says, and they're in my Father's hand. What force in heaven or hell can take a believer, a sheep, out of the Father and the Son's hand? It can't happen. It's impossible. So when we're feeling that, maybe I'm just not a Christian. I know who Jesus is. I know what He did. I'm trying to live a good life and be a good Christian. I'm just blowing it. Maybe I'm not a Christian. I say, well, if you got eternal life, you got eternal life. And you can't lose it. And Jesus' sheep hear His voice. And they're safe in His hand. Now, I don't want to explain away what I just said, but I do want to say this. There are people in most churches in the United States today who are going to church, think they're going to heaven, and they're not. And I'm not speaking to those people. And if you're one of them, I'm sorry. But what you see in Luke's Gospel is this. 
that people who will stand before God and say, hey, I'm yours and you're mine, and Jesus says, I never knew you. This is what he says. They say, their appeal to God, guess what it's based on? It's not based on Christ. It's not based on God's promises. You remember what they say in Luke's Gospel? But don't you realize what I did for you? We healed in your name. We did miracles in your name. We, 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 I, 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 I. It's absolutely the opposite of what you see here in Deuteronomy. It's the opposite of salvation. They appeal to God based on themselves and what they've done. You'll never get to heaven that way. And the folks who sit in churches who are going to stand before Christ one day and say, I'm a Christian, and Jesus says, you never were. He doesn't say you were. Now you're not. He says you never were, and their appeal to God is based on themselves. Guys, you'll never get there. Never happen. So, Romans 8. Nothing, no one, time, future, anything can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So God's keeping grace. His provisional or providing grace. All of us will find ourselves in one or more of these situations. And we'll also know other people like ourselves who are in these situations too. We need to know what God has committed Himself to. God's providing grace. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, My God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You remember this was in relation to a collection being taken in Corinth to send to the saints in Jerusalem. And God said, this doesn't mean, by the way, this is not the health and wealth gospel. You'll have enough, and you'll have enough to be generous with others, to share with others. And that's the norm. You see the same thing by Paul in Philippians 4. I'm content in every situation I'm in, whether I have much or I have little. And he says the secret is my God supplies all our needs according to His riches in grace in Christ Jesus. We have enough. What, guys, so if we're facing a shortage as a family, as an individual, as a church, we say, Lord, we need this, this much, we have this much. How do you want to do that? You've, you've agreed to provide for our needs. What does that look like? His commitment to our needs is not His commitment to our wants. We want all kinds of things. I find, I find that I want all the, all the time things that God's not giving me. I'm a little put out over it too. I had a conversation about that with the Lord this morning. You know, and if you're in the Word long enough, you realize you're just painted into a corner. God's all sovereign. I'm never going to end His will. He's all loving. He can't do better by me than He is. And I'm still complaining. Where is that conversation going? I'm on the losing end again. It's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not adjusting my mind to reality. God can't love me any more than He is. So my situation, though I like it more or less, is still God's mercy and grace. He's keeping His promises. I've got to adjust my own take on reality. So God's providing grace and last. God's comforting grace. And guys, I know people in the room right now that need this. And if you don't need it now, you will. But life's hard and we do live in the valley of the shadow of death and bad things happen and you need comfort. You need reassurance. You need encouragement. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings and we share abundantly in Christ's comforts. In fact, he says that he, he was in areas of life where he needed to receive comfort. Having received that comfort, he was able to comfort others. It sort of becomes formulaic. God comforts me. I'm able to comfort others. But God is the God of all comfort. He encourages us. You see the same thing in Psalm 23. So... When you and I pray, are we praying 
God's word, his promises back to him. Is that our model? That's what Moses did. It's what people throughout the Bible do. As we face the challenges of life, and these would be our own giants, right? As the people of Israel go into the land, they face giants, real giants. They face walled cities. They face armies better than their armies. You and I face things that are above our ability to to comprehend, to adjust to, to get over, to circumvent. As we do those things, are we going to God in prayer based on what God has already committed Himself to? That gives us confidence. When confronted by our own sin, and this is important because this is sort of the gist of the Deuteronomy passages, do we confess with confidence knowing our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus? And if we're not feeling the benefit of that through confession, are we asking God, God, would you help me lay hold fully of the promise you've given me so I get the benefit of it? Because sometimes we're the father of the demonized boy. We say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's honest. That's okay. God's good with that. He'll work with us. But Lord, you've said this. I want to live and experience the good of it. Would you help me with that? When we face needs beyond our abilities, do we look to God and His promises for comfort, direction, and provision? As we wind down, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. And the context is this. He's got a really unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship with the Corinthian church. And in 2 Corinthians, he had told them, hey, I'm going to come see you. And then he said, oh, I'm not going to come see you. So they're saying, man, Paul's duplicity. First he says one thing, then he says another. And so Paul says this. He says, for the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Paul says, listen, even though information came up, I didn't want to come, and, and, and basically it was going to be too hard on you, so I, so I stalled, I didn't come when I otherwise would have. But he said, if you're confused at all, I want you to know that when God says yes, He means yes. And that Jesus is the ultimate guarantee that when God says yes, He means yes. 2 Corinthians 1. Think of just a few of the promises in the Old Testament God's already kept. These are very few. These are major. These are big ones. But when God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Jesus was the fulfillment of that in His death and resurrection. Death on the cross, resurrection. Satan's already defeated in that sense. Jesus will make a full end of that yet in the future. But that promise has already been kept in Jesus. Jesus made that promise good in His incarnation, death, and resurrection. Genesis 12.3, In you, all families of the earth, Abraham will be blessed. Paul tells us in Galatians how that was kept. It's already been kept. Because he says it wasn't to Abraham directly. It was to Abraham's seed, his descendant. And Paul says that term there is to be understood singularly, not plural, not many descendants, but singular descendant Jesus. So Paul tells us that God has already kept His promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. It's been kept in Jesus. 2 Samuel 7, 11-17. Do you remember David, King David says, God, I want to build you a house, a temple. And God says, nice idea, but I'll build you a house instead. And so one of your descendants will, will begin a kingdom that will never end. And that kingdom's already been initiated. It's not in its fullness on earth. But King Jesus sits enthroned on the throne of heaven today and will come down and set up His throne in the new Jerusalem on earth, that's still going to happen. But Jesus has come. He has kept. The descendant of David sits on an eternal throne right now. It's already kept. And last, Malachi 4.2, 
the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings. There's a sense in which that was kept in the Incarnation. John the Baptist was like Elijah announcing this and the Son of Righteousness was the appearance of Christ. I think in its fullness it will end up being at the Second Coming. But this is just to say a few of the ways in which you see God's already kept His promise and it's always through Jesus. Jesus is God's exclamation point, if you will, on all of His promises. So if He's kept these promises, you can trust Him for every lesser promise. Heaven and hell, life and death, past, present, future. Jesus is the assurance that God's promises will all be kept. And ultimately, they're kept in Christ. So, closing down just on those last points of application. Thank you. First is this. Do we have the ultimate answer to all of our needs? And that's simply the question. Do we have Christ? Do we have Christ? If we're a sinner, if we're ungodly, we can have Christ. If we're unsure today, you can go home absolutely sure. If you know you're a sinner, Christ died for you. You can accept that salvation as a free gift and go home knowing you have eternal life and you'll never perish and no one can snatch you out of the Father or the Son's hand. Do you have Christ? Are we praying God's Word and promises back to God? Some of that might go like this. Father, thank You that You've promised to provide for our needs. Show us what that looks like. I've got to pay the bills. I've got to take care of Junior. Whatever that might be. Lord, what does that look like? Help me to see that. Or, Father, You've promised to forgive my sins. Help me to feel the good of that. Help me to see, experience the reality of that. Do we understand our standing before God is complete because we rest in Christ? Again, this isn't about, we don't appeal to God based on our worthiness. We appeal to God based on Christ's worthiness. In Ephesians, one of the key phrases is in Christ. You see the same thing in Colossians. We're in Christ. We stand complete in Christ. When we pray in Jesus' name, do we pray for the things Jesus would? Most Christians know, because we we close our prayers this way, right? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Some people feel incomplete in their prayer if they don't say, in Jesus' name. I think we miss this a lot, right? What did Jesus mean by that? Pray as I would pray. You have my authority to stand before the Father and make an appeal based on my authority and my, my will, my things. If Jesus gave us a checkbook and he signed every check, the checks are only going to be cashed if those amounts are for the things Jesus wants. So sometimes we say, Lord, I prayed in Jesus' name and it didn't happen. And you say, well, it's a forged check. You're writing down things that Jesus never wanted. So when we pray in Jesus' name, are we praying Jesus' will? How do we know Jesus' will? We would need to, this is where you say, read the Bible. You'd have to read the Bible. You'd have to know what Jesus is committed to. Right? You've got to know what he said. You can't just go and say, in Jesus' name, and so that somehow, that's sacrosanct. God's going to answer that prayer. It doesn't work that way. In Jesus' name. In his standing. For his benefit. For his glory. When we do pray in Jesus' name the way he referred to, do we count on God's faithfulness to Jesus in responding to our prayers made for his sake, for Jesus' sake, and in his name? So this is the thing we can bank on. God's absolutely sovereign and He's gracious. And He unites His sovereignty and His grace in His promises. And if we know what His promises are, we can go boldly before the throne of grace to receive whatever that kind of help is we need in that moment. You can take that to the bank. That'll work. Let's pray. Father, help us to be wise and simply 
flying to your word every day to discern your counsel, your will, and your promises. Father, would you help us to honor Jesus, the one who has entered heaven itself as our representative, by simply praying according to his name as he would. And God, would you give us the benefit of the assurance that a God who cannot lie has committed himself to us in his word. We can absolutely depend. Lord, we want to hold your promises true. We flee to you in the worthy name of Jesus and ask that you'd help us inform all our prayers by your word and your will. In Jesus' name, amen.